Welcome. It's good to be here, and we are so glad you're here. We're in week seven of our On the Road series where we've been looking at this idea of a God-centered life and how we can trust God with the little things and leading us in a way that leads to a life, a fulfilled life. And so what we're going to look, about, look at this weekend is we're going to look at a question, a question that is so significant when it comes to our faith. This question, the answer to it actually has significant implications for this God-centered life and for us experiencing life to the full. But before we get to the question, tease, I know, right? I want to do a little bit of a poll, and so I'm going to need some help. And if you're here at any of our campuses, then you can help. And I'm going to ask a question, and if, if this question pertains to you, I just want you to raise your hand, okay? So how many of you, when you see this picture, think that the car is empty? So it's like at a quarter of it, somebody, there's like an amen over there, like, yes, I told you the car's like, all right, so we're going to let that, there's a marriage series we did way earlier, you can see. So the car's empty, that's good, type A people, we know where you are now, that's good. All right, how many of you think that this is when the car is empty? Now the light's on, right? That's my people right there, that's my people. The light's there for a reason, right? That's what the light's for. I have it even worse, <laughs> some clapping. Love this guy already. I have a, a minivan. Don't judge me. I have a minivan, and uh, it has, it's even worse because it'll tell you how far you can go, right? It'll have, like, miles. Like, you can go 10 more miles until it gets to, like, a star, and then, like, all bets are off. You're on your own when it gets it. My wife loves it when it gets to star level. She's like, how far can we get? Star. We're okay. We got plenty of time, babe. Don't worry about it. But we have this anxiety, right? Figure out what it is. And now how many, just, okay, we'll see. That's two people. How many people, this is when you know that your car is empty? Yeah, everybody else, right? So good. Some of you were helped voting by the elbow that was going right next to you. So good. Well, it's, it's interesting, right? Such a simple question, when is the car empty, has three different answers, right? There's probably more. Some of you would go, it's a half full, whatever it is. But uh, there's so many different answers. Well, the question that we have today actually has even more answers than that. There's probably out of three campuses with people watching online and probably hundreds or thousands of answers to this question. And what's so profound about this question is that you have asked it. I can say with a high level of confidence that no matter where you are, no matter what brought you in the doors here, no matter what you have done in your life, your socioeconomic status, no matter what it is, you have asked this question. And even more so, the answer that you have given to this question has been up to this point a unbelievably heavy guiding principle in your life. You ready for the question? This is the question. Who am I? Who am I? Three little words that have a tremendous amount of weight on our life. Three little words. And maybe you're here and you're like, that's the question? Man, I can get out of here. We can go to the beach right now. That's all he's got. Because you think, I know the answer to that question. If somebody asked me at a party, hey, tell me about yourself. What do you do? I know. I do this and I work here and here's my physical Gunshot. I have physical attributes, whatever it is. That we have, go you know the answer. You're like, I already know the answer to that question. And I would say, you know an answer to that question. I don't think you know the answer to that question, but we'll get there. Or maybe you're like many people and you go, I, I don't really know. I've actually thought about that question a lot and I have no idea. I don't know how to answer that question. I don't even know if there is an answer for that question. Well, I have good news for you. There is an answer and we're going to find it today. There's one answer that's true for everybody regardless of background, regardless of what brought you in today. And we're going to find the answer to this question by looking 
at a letter that a man wrote who was one of the most influential people in the first century. And it's not Jesus, even though we're in a church. But this influential guy was, he, like me and like a lot of you, he didn't even become a follower of Jesus Christ until late in his life. Matter of fact, he was one of the key people that was persecuting Jesus' earliest followers. And so his transformation from persecutor of Jesus' followers to follower of Jesus is one of the many reasons that we can have confidence that Christ is risen and the resurrection was true because this guy, his name was Saul, was an up-and-coming, he was like top of the class, super smart, bright, part of this group called the Pharisees. He was a, a religious group back then, part of the key group that was in charge or had very instrumental in arresting and crucifying Jesus. And they were in well with the Roman government, which was kind of the superpower at the time. So he was on the winning team. If you looked at Paul, you're like, Paul or Saul has it all together. This guy has, he's got a full tank. He is completely ready to go. But all that changed when Saul ran into and had a conversation with a very alive Jesus after Jesus' death and burial. See, Saul, when you think you're on the winning team and you're persecuting because this guy said, I'm the son of God and I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and there's people that believe that and they're believing that he, he's resurrected and then you run into the guy, the man who predicted his own death and resurrection and then pulled it off, you start to rethink. You go, wait a minute, I thought I was on the winning team. Now I'm not so sure. I'm going to be on this guy's team. And so that's what happens. Jesus says, no, I, I want you to, to stop what you're doing, and I want you to go instead, and I want you to tell all the Gentiles, which is everybody who's not Jewish. If you're here and you're not Jewish, you're a Gentile. They're kings and all the Jews. So pretty much everybody, I want you to go tell them about me. And so fast forward a few years, and Saul, now Paul, is traveling around and he's meeting with these little churches, this little startup groups of people, some larger than others, of new Jesus followers, people that have heard about the resurrection from eyewitnesses going, There's, Jesus is who he says he is. He did what he said he's going to do. And so he's going around and he's encouraging these churches and he's writing letters to them, encouraging them and challenging them and saying, here's what we got to do to keep living this life that God called us to live. And almost half of the New Testament is made up of Paul's writings. So he's the significant character. And What's interesting, that's our history lesson for today, is that we're going to look at this, one of these letters today that he wrote to a little church in Ephesus, and we're going to find the answer to our question today. So if you have a Bible, um, then, or you have the Bible app, free Bible app, then you can follow along with us. We'll be in Ephesians chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, don't worry, it's going to be on the side screens and up here. Or if you can't download the app because you have like a Blackberry, don't worry about it. Like we'll get you a cassette tape and you can listen to it on your Walkman on the way out. Or whatever you do for Blackberry people. I don't, we'll pray for you. I don't know what it is. So Paul starts off in uh, the second chapter of Ephesians, and he begins really strong. He says this, as for you, no argument about who he's talking to. This you is to the church, this church in Ephesus. But he's saying, as for you, you believers, you people that are following Jesus. And so that's to us as well in this room. If you would identify yourself as a follower of Jesus, he's speaking to you as well. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. And the word dead there means dead. It doesn't mean you were in trouble with God because of your transgressions and sins. It doesn't mean that you were on the naughty list. It doesn't mean you had like a, like a mark on your permanent record. He's saying you were dead in your transgressions and sins. 
The things that you thought were giving you life were actually giving you death. He's reminding them out of the gate, you were dead. Don't think you weren't, you were dead, in which you used to live. And this is an interesting idea, this idea of used to live. Paul is writing to this church and he's saying, you used to be sinners, but you're not anymore. He's not saying to this church, you are sinners who are forgiven, you are still people who struggle and you have the sinners. No, he's treating them, he's talking to them as if they are clean and blameless and they do not, you used to live that way, but you don't live that way anymore. Transgressions and sins, you don't live that way anymore. More on that in a little bit. He'll unpack it further. He continues on. When you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Now we know, we can infer that that is talking about Satan, right? That God has given dominion over the earth to Satan, the ruler of the kingdom. We followed him before we knew anything about Jesus. These people, these people that were dead in their transgressions and followed the ruler of the air. The spirit who is now at work. And what's funny is this letter was written thousands of years ago, but is there anybody here that does not believe that there is a clear and present evil still now at work in this day and age. When there are little girls who are being sold to ISIS militants in the Middle East, do we doubt that there is evil still at work, now at work? So this letter is just as applicable for us as we sit here today in 2015, now at work in those who are disobedient. And so he's saying those who are not obedient to what God is calling them to be. The people who are hearing God's message and walking away or the people that don't know anything about God's message and are just disobedient because they just don't know. He is at work in those people now at work in this day and age. Continuing on, Paul says, all of us, and this is important because here's Paul, right? The guy who ran into Jesus on the road and had his life changed and his life has been transformed. He says, all of us, I'm not any different. All of us, Everybody, all, also lived among them at one time. He's reminding the church, hey, church, before you start thinking that you're better than other people, remember all of us, all of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh. And you know what those things are in your own life. You know what those things are. It's the things that you chase, the relationships, like my story, the relationships I chase, the successes I chase. Maybe it's drugs. Maybe it's pornography. Maybe it's whatever that thing is in your life that you are chasing because you just want more of it, that you're trying to satisfy the cravings of your flesh. Paul's saying we were all there. All of us were there and following its desires and thoughts. And he continues on. Like the rest, again, He keeps reminding. It's as if he thinks that Christians are going to assume that they're better than other people. It's a crazy thought. Like He's like, hey, I need to remind you that you're not better. Like the rest, like everybody else, we were by nature deserving of wrath. And this word wrath is what it sounds like. We were deserving of a punishment because of our transgressions and sins. We were deserving of separation from God. We are deserving of it even now in our transgressions. But, here's the hope, because of his great love, because of God's great love, God who is rich in mercy, this idea of abundance, God has this huge vault of mercy, but because he has that, he made us alive with Christ even when, and this is a key piece for Paul, even when, even when 
We were dead in our transgressions. You see, Christ didn't wait for Paul to clean up his act. Christ didn't wait for Paul to turn around on the road and go, gosh, I shouldn't do this. He interceded immediately. He didn't wait for me as a 22-year-old kid to get my act together before he reconciled me. This is... This idea, this even when idea, is the reason that Paul, and you can read his letters, how he can use words like holy people. You are a holy people. You are God's people. He talks to the church like they are saints because God interceded even when, even when they were sinners, God made them right. He continues on. It is by grace you have been saved, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly place. So what he's saying here is that God raised us up. Is there anybody that reads this and thinks that you did the heavy lifting? Is there any church that goes, oh, yeah, God raised me up, but I did like 50%. Like I kind of stood up a little bit. No, Paul's reminding us God did all the work. If I go to pick up a box, if I go to lift a box... The box doesn't do anything, right? God, I do all the work. God did all the work to raise us up. He's reminding them, you had nothing to do with this. And he's reminding them that he raised you up so high that he put you in Jesus' place. So when he looks at you, he sees saints. He sees Jesus sitting to his right. That's a powerful statement. That's a powerful truth for Paul to remind the church that you didn't have anything to do with it, this unmerited favor that you get, and you were lifted and you were placed at the right hand of God. He continues on. In order, so Paul's given us the purpose now for why did God do all of this? It it sounds great. Why did he do it? Why did he put us in Jesus' spot? He answers the question, in order that in the coming ages, so in the future, We sit in a coming age to Paul's Ephesus church. There's a coming age ahead of us. In the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. God raised us up. God saved us even when so that he, his incomparable riches could be put on display. It is an incomparable riches that I am standing here in front of you. It is beyond what I ever could imagine that I could be part of a church that is trying to reach the triangle and change the world. That's incomparable riches that we get to be part of that. It's incomparable riches that while we were dead in our transgressions and sin, that Christ would step down into humanity and be reconcile us back to God. That's incomparable riches. And Paul is reminding us it's so that we can go forward and we can be an example to people in the coming ages of those incomparable riches. It's not for us. It's not so we have a golden ticket to heaven one day. It's for a purpose so that we can be God's living display of his incomparable riches. He continues on. For it is by grace, again reminding them, by grace, God's work, unmerited favor, that you have been saved through faith, through your faith in what Christ did. That it is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by words, so that no one can boast. Interesting, he says not that no one will boast, but he says so that no one can boast. And this is a powerful idea to understand, especially if you're a follower of Jesus. Because the temptation is to think for a moment that your good works are somehow deserving, that God is lucky to have you on his team. 
because you're polished or you're sharp or you graduated with this degree or you have this talent or this ability and you go, well, of course God picked me. I'm like number two in the kickball line, right? Like, that's not the way it works. By his grace, not by ourselves, he picked us so that no one can boast. And it's interesting, so he finishes this thought so that no one can boast, and then he answers our question. And he answers it very simply by continuing in verse 10. He says this, for we are God's handiwork. Who are you? You are God's handiwork. It's interesting. You might have a version that says masterpiece. The, word, uh, the Greek word here is poema. Y'all say that. Poema. Say it one more time. Poema. Try it again like we all mean it. Poema. We all speak Greek now. So good. And it's, the word means that which has been made. So we are that which has been made by God. It's where we get our word poetry and poem from. You are God's handiwork. If you sit here, you are God's handiwork. You should write that down. You should send that to yourself. Remind yourself of that. You are God's handiwork. It's this powerful idea. It's not that your identity is wrapped up in not what you have done. It's not wrapped up in who you think you are. It's not wrapped up in who you want to be. It's not wrapped up in what people think about you. It's not wrapped up in your circumstances. You are wrapped up fully in God. It's, it's like this. Who you are is determined by whose you are. Let me say that again because regardless of what brought you in, regardless of where you are, what, what led you in the doors here, and like Ryan said, it's not an accident you're here. Who you are is determined by whose you are. And when you understand this concept, when you understand that your identity is not found in all these things, it's not found in the stuff of the world, it's not found chasing things like the world will teach you, then it allows you to, oh, wait a minute, you start thinking about things differently, you start acting differently, you start understanding things differently. When we understand this concept that we belong to God, then there's no doubt in our minds about our purpose and our plan because they're his. We trust him with them. And so you're here and you're like, okay, that sounds great. Great, I'm, I belong to God. What does that mean? Well, if, if you're here and you're a Christian, that means that you are fully complete in Christ. Fully complete. That means you are not your circumstances. You're not your job. You're not your uh, what you think about yourself, you're not what other people think about you, you're not your successes, you're not your failures, you're not your accomplishments, you're not your shortcomings, you're not your Facebook profile, although I'm sure you want that to be true sometimes. You are fully sufficient in Christ. Or maybe you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus and you go, okay, what does that mean for me? It means you are God's handiwork. You just don't know it yet. And you're chasing stuff. I've been there. I've been there. You're chasing things that you think matter. You're chasing what the world tells you is going to identify you. You're chasing unhealthy stuff, stuff that if you're honest and you know it, it's damaging to you. But the truth is once we make this realization, everything changes. Because the, the truth is this, and I remember when, it, when I came to the realization of this, if you are all the things that we would say 
okay, what, do you, what am I? I'm my job, I'm my relationship, I'm my net worth, I'm whatever it is. If that's who you are, what happens when it's taken away? What happens when Monday or Tuesday you lose your job if your identity is your job? What happens when your spouse or your significant other leaves you? What happens when your bank account is drained? What happens when your possessions are stolen? What happens when you have a sickness or a death that rocks you to your very core? What happens when you are forced to move to a city or a country? Well, if it's in all those things that are temporary and fleeting, you're going to be in a crisis, aren't you? You're going to have an identity crisis because what you thought you were has been taken away. The image I remember thinking as I'm sitting there praying those 14 years ago, I remember thinking, gosh, if that stuff is all I am, then I'm just nothing. It's like I'm running this race and there's a carrot ahead of me on a stick and no matter how far I run or how fast I run, the carrot just stays ahead of me. And for whatever reason, in God's grace and in his mercy, he slowed me down through the funeral of a 19-year-old kid. And he said, wait a minute. And it's like I stopped the race long enough to look over and see God sitting at a table filled with food, like good food, like Krispy Kreme donuts and McRib sandwiches, like good food. And he looked at me and said, bro, he's Southern Californian, I think. Bro, why are you chasing a carrot? Like, what happens if you catch the carrot? You don't even have like ranch dressing to make it worth anything. Like, it's a carrot. Stop. Isn't this what you want? Don't you want life and abundance and significance? And I have all of that. That carrot isn't it. I mean, what's the end game for that carrot? And it's like it hit me like a ton of, you're right. There's, there's more to it than this. And this guy Tyson had found it. And through God's grace, I found it. Here's what I want you to do. Here's your homework assignment. I want you to go home either this weekend or it can be today if you're super brave. And I want you to get a blank sheet of paper and I want you to write at the top of it, who am I? And I want you to start filling it out. And I want you to be honest. I'm not going to check on it. My wife's the teacher. I don't have a red felt pen or anything like that. So be honest. Who do you think you are? All the things that you think define you, write them down. And then I want you to do this. I want you to find somebody that knows you really well. It could be a spouse, it could be a close friend, it could be a neighbor, it could be whatever. Somebody that knows you well and can speak truth to you. And if you don't have somebody like that, you need to get somebody like that in your life. Those people are vital. But I want you to ask them the same question. Who am I? And I want them to write down their answers and then I want them to share them with you. And here's what I know about that exercise. Some of their answers are gonna surprise you. They're going to say things about you that you either don't want to be true or you don't think are true. Some of their answers are going to encourage you. They're going to say, yes, that's, that's what I think I am. That's, that's great. And some of their answers are going to challenge you. They're going to hurt you potentially because they see things that you think nobody else sees. The truth is when we understand our identity, when we can take that and we can go, all right, if all of that is not true and I'm fully God's, if that's my identity, once we come to that realization, that's where God can do an amazing work through you. See, he's not waiting for you to get your act together. Again, he didn't wait for Paul, didn't wait for me, doesn't wait for you, doesn't wait for anybody 
to get their act together. Even when we were in our transgressions and sins, he reached down. Matter of fact, if you were missed last weekend's message, you need to go home and listen to it because Mike did a phenomenal job talking about the bad stuff that happens. And what about that? How is that from God? The truth is, when we are fully identified in Christ and in who we are in God, he uses that bad stuff in a significant way. It empowers me to be a better parent when I don't have to pretend like I have it all together to my kids and to other parents. I can go, yeah, I have a four-year-old who's crazy, and she is, and I don't have to pretend like I have it all together because I'm a pastor, right? I don't have to be like, oh, yeah, we pray all the time, and, like, she floats around all the time. Like, no, I can be like, that thing is crazy, and she likes telling her brother to, like, run away from me when we're trying to, like, I can be real. And in the brokenness and the shortcomings of me as a father, to other fathers, I can be an encouragement. And to my daughter, I can say, the best you're going to get from me is imperfection, honey. I love you, but the best you're going to get from me is that. But I know of a perfect heavenly father, and I can point you towards him. The only way I can have those conversations and say those things is if I am fully sufficient and confident that they don't define me. Me being a bad parent doesn't define me. Me being a struggling husband trying to figure out doesn't define me. It gives me freedom. See, the truth is the only ability God needs to use you is your availability. Sounds real cheesy, I know, but it's true. It's the only ability he needs. He doesn't need you to act like you have it all together. He just needs you to trust him. See, we're created to be God's masterpiece. And unlike a masterpiece that would hang in an art museum on a wall, he created us as a masterpiece for a master purpose to impact the world around us. Paul finishes verse 10 by saying this, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You are God's masterpiece to do good works, not to come to church every weekend and hear Mike and go home and hear and go home. No, to do, to be the hands and feet of Jesus in a hurting and broken world to reconcile your neighbor or your coworker or your spouse or your kids back to God, to do good work. And this part leapt out at me this week as I was preparing. I've read this verse, but never have seen this in this kind of way, this idea of prepared in advance. Do we understand how significant that is? The God of the universe, before you were born, had a plan for you a plan for you to partner with him to impact the world around you. A plan that is uniquely crafted to you, to you, to you, to you, to you in Holly Springs and even you in Morrisville, right? He has a plan and a purpose that is crafted before you were even born. And all he's waiting for is for you to know him, for you to trust him, for you to follow him so that he can use you to impact the world around you. What would it look like if we understood this concept, if we really got it, if we identified whose we are and we let that be an outpouring of how we acted, that, we, uh, that shaped what we did, that shaped how we acted, how we interacted with each other. I tell you this, our mission of Reach the Triangle, Change the World would be a lot easier because we would be doing it. God would be doing 
so much through us because we're resting fully in him. We don't have to act like we have it all together. We don't have to act like our tank is full when it's fully empty. We can just be sufficient and resting in him. I'm going to leave you with a visual that I think is going to help. How many of you seen the show, uh, show Street Genius? Anybody seen that show? Like, nobody. That's good. That's great. This ought to be a really solid example. Well, it's a show. It's on National Geographic. Well, that's probably why nobody's seen it. But, and uh, what they do is they take this British guy, because they sound smarter, right? British people sound smarter. And he goes out in the world, and he pulls four people, and he asks them a question. What do you think about this, and what do you think is going to happen if we shoot this you know, selection of 10 water balloons filled with water with a gun. How many, you know, that's really one of the things, really cool. And so, and then they ask him, what do you think? And then he pulls them and they give their answer and then they do the experiment, which is really cool. And then they say, oh, this is what happened. And they get into the physics of it. Well, he takes this one episode, he gets four people, he pulls them from a gas station and he says, hey, we're going to go blow up some cars. You want to come with us? Yeah, I'm in. Blowing up cars. Why not? So he got into this field and he has four cars. One is full, gas completely full. One is half. One is a quarter, or as we learned earlier, empty for some of you people, right? And then one is, has been drained. The tank is completely empty. And ask him a simple question. Which one is going to explode? Which one's going to make like the biggest explosion? And then he has them go stand by it, and then he pulls them back so that they can blow it up and see what happens. So two of the people pick the tank that's full. One person picks the half tank, and one person picks the quarter slash empty tank, whatever. Yeah, so the tank that was full didn't do anything. It didn't fail. It just didn't do anything. It wasn't, didn't explode, didn't even spark, didn't do anything. And the tank that was empty made like this Marvel style explosion, right? Just blew up. And I think the lesson, the, the visual that I want you to get is when we can fully understand that at the end of the day, our tanks really are empty. Like Paul when he thought he had it all together, like, oh, I'm the Pharisee of Pharisees, Jew among Jews, I'm the guy. And he's like, my tank is full. God couldn't use him at all in that moment. You're already full of yourself, bro. Have at it. Let me know how that works out for you. It's until he realized, no, 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 I'm, I'm nothing without God. By his grace, by his mercy, I am empty. He said it, in my weakness, he is made stronger. God is made stronger. So when he finally gets that, when he gets that image, when he gets that picture, when we understand that, that we don't have to act like we have it all together, that we really need to drain the tank of all the stuff that we think matters, that we think is our identity, and we can rest fully in who we are, that's when God can do big stuff. That's when he can do big things through you and in you and in your family and in your homes and in our neighborhoods and in our cities and in the world. Do we have to get to the place when we're willing to admit that we don't have it all together and we don't need to have it all together? Because when we're empty and that light comes on and we think, all right, we're running low, we have a God that's never going to leave us stranded on the side of the road, ever. Can I pray for us? Father, we thank you that even while we are sinners and we are lost in our deadness and in our transgressions, Father, that you, through your grace and through your riches and through your mercy, would see fit to step down and to reconcile us back to you. Father, what an unbelievable honor and privilege it is just to be a part of what you are doing in this world. And Father, as I stand here on this stage, it's inconceivable to me 
that you would allow us to take part in something so significant as reconciling people back to you, to calling people back so that they understand that they are your handiwork, they are your masterpieces. Father, I would pray for those who have heard that, who have followed Jesus and would say, I am a follower of Jesus, that you would remind them that it is not by anything that they have done, but it is by your grace. And Father, that in Christ we are sufficient and we are enough. And Father, I would pray for those who, like me, didn't know you from a lizard, that you would, in this moment, that you would remind us that it's not an accident that we're here. It's not an accident that we're sitting here at one of our campuses, and yet now you would remind us that even before time, you knew us. Even now, in our moments of weakness and in our moments of doubt, you know us. And in our dirtiness and our messiness and whatever else we have going on, even if it's, we think we have everything put together, you still know us and you love us. And God, for those people, I would just pray that they would come into a relationship with you, that they would know you, that they would admit their need for you, that they would trust in who you are, and they would choose to follow you, Father. Because, as I can attest to, my worst day with you is a billion times better than my best day without you. And so, Father, we thank you that you love us that much, that you would give us such joy and such pleasure and life to the full. And Father, I thank you for the men and women who laid their lives on the line so that we can be in a country that we can celebrate you and we can be reminded of your truth and we can gather in a large gathering and worship you and learn about you without fear of retribution or punishment. God, thank you for those men and women who have given their lives and for their families. We pray that we would not remember this weekend and think, oh, it's a three-day weekend, Father, that we would stop and we would be reminded of their sacrifice, the land of the free because of the brave, Father. We love you so much. We thank you for everything that you have blessed us with. We are a very blessed people. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.